Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. Oh my gosh. I see dead people. Did that just freak you out a little bit? That movie called The Sixth Sense. <laughs> I remember seeing this. I think it was uh, late 1900s. I think 1999 was when it came out. And I remember, right? Do you, how many of you see, saw that movie, right? You saw it in the theater? You are old. All right. Bruce Willis and, and Haley Joel Osment in this movie. Like when you get to the end of that movie, the end just will blow you away when you have to watch the movie. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But needless to say, this scene, by the end of the movie, you go, oh, no. Right? Right? Didn't you do that? I love this scene. Now, you have to understand, I have a spiritual gift that sometimes annoys my family because I will watch things or listen to songs or, or just anything becomes like a sermon illustration. It illustrates for me biblical truths, right? If you believe that all truth is God's truth, then even the world stumbles upon truth sometimes. And like a a hazy dream as they're coming awake, they can't really remember the whole truth. And so they give you bits and pieces, right? So, So as you view what the world puts out, filter it, right? Because sometimes they have bits of truth. And in this moment, I'm, I'm sitting there watching this and I'm like, that's scripture. Haley Joel Osment has, he, he, he has spiritual eyes. He sees dead people everywhere and they don't know they're dead. They, they don't even see each other. They only see what they want to see. I, 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 as I watched the movie, I just was like, he, he's describing the, the spiritual state of our world. Dead people wandering around and they don't even know they're dead. And he identifies it. And I think Bruce Willis, his face says it all when he says, I see dead people. And he's like, like in your dreams? <laughs> no. Okay, you're crazy. <laughs> It's sensational, right? I, I think some of you are looking at me with that same, uh, the same look. I, I'm a little crazy. I'll, I'll get that. I think people looked at, no, that's not a poor time for an amen. <laughs> I think people looked at Jesus the same way. They looked at him like he was crazy, the things that he would say, and the sensational things he would say. That's why in our mic drop series, we're, we're looking at those things that are, are sometimes difficult to understand that Jesus says. And some of the things that aren't difficult to understand, they're just difficult to put into to action. And so I encourage you, if you haven't been with us yet uh, for the mic drop series, I encourage you to get the podcast at c2church.com. We want to welcome our Facebook Live and our live stream audience as you participate with us as well. You can get all the, the previous videos as well on our Facebook But Jesus says pretty sensational stuff. He does the proverbial mic drop. That moment he just says something and he just steps back because there's nothing else to say. He's waiting for you to to chase after that, to to put it into practice. There's these mic drop moments that I think we can really glean from Jesus, some things that he wants for us. Now, a question for you. Do you take the Bible literally? Do you take the Bible literally? Honest question. Okay, one person does. 
Well, here, here's the thing. I, I remember a few years ago, I, I had uh, these wonderful people uh, with black ties knock on my door and white shirts, and, and uh, they, I think they were Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or something. They came by, and they wanted to share the truth with me. <laughs> None of our days were going to go well after this moment. As I was like, come on in. <laughs> they didn't know I was a pastor <laughs> yet. And so we, uh, we began to have a conversation, and, and I began to learn from them kind of their view. They, they call themselves Christians, and yet the view of Jesus in the Bible is, is, is just a little off-center that it leads them far enough away from the actual truth. And so we began to talk and converse, and one of the questions they asked me was, do you take the whole Bible literally? And I thought, well, <laughs> I know where you're going with this. They're setting me up. And I said, sure, because I do believe that the Bible is literally inspired by God himself. I literally believe that these are God's words penned to me. But I said, I'll play. Yeah, I believe. Well, do you believe in the dragons that are talked about in Revelation? And, and they begin to, like, knock down my sense of, of understanding of Scripture. And I probably would have believed them had I not known what the Bible says, even about itself. And so as you look at the Bible, we take the Bible literally. Our church believes that the Bible is the inspired, infallible words of God to us, a source of life. And in this moment, there was an argument to be made. The rest of the conversation was just sort of revolved around that. But I think, like I said last week, you have to understand, you have to learn from the Bible in, in the culture that it was written and the context it was written. You can't just take one verse and go, okay, I, that's all it means. You have to read what's around it. You have to understand what the writer's intent was. You have to understand the culture it was originally written to, and that helps you understand the principles to be applied to our life. And certainly the Bible has different genres, not only written in different cultures, but different genres. So there's poetry like the, the, the Song of Solomon is, is a poetic book. Is it, is it meant to be taken literally? There's, there's principles. There's truth to be learned from it. There's history that is literal. There are narrative stories. There's imagery used. When Jesus spoke, he used various teaching methods as well. Jesus taught with authority, but he used various teaching methods. And so he used parables teaching stories. They were fictional stories that taught a very deep spiritual truth. And so he would tell these stories and draw people in to the truth he wanted to teach them. He would use questions. Any of you have a teacher that used questions to teach you? See what I did there? I just asked you a question. But one of the things he used was hyperbole. You ever heard of hyperbole? Exaggeration for the point of emphasis you're trying, uh, you're trying to overstate something intentionally that you might highlight something. So modern day uh, phrases would be something like, man, this bag of groceries weighs a ton. Does it literally weigh a ton? Well, it might because some of you are like me. You can't just take two bags of groceries in at a time. You got to take them all in at one time. You know, you got bags up to your shoulders. Because you, you ain't going to take two trips. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> My wife's like, why don't you take multiple trips? I don't need to. I got it. Just open the door. 
I've been waiting forever. You have not literally waited forever, right? Or the phrase, well, everybody knows that. Okay, everybody? Hyperbole, like other figures of speech, they aren't meant to be taken literally. My kids like to say the word literally, hyperbolically, <laughs> literally. So I literally died. How are we, now I see dead people. How are we having this conversation? So Jesus uses hyperbole to teach. And it's important as you read scripture, you take the context in which he's talking. How is he trying to communicate? And so in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to the crowd. And this point is, is I think, so important that, that Matthew actually records that Jesus says it here in, verse, or in chapter 18. He also says it in verse 5, and we'll get to that in a second. But he says basically the same, same thing. In Matthew chapter 18, in verses 8 and 9, he says this. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, how many of you take the Bible literally? (laughs) I do. Okay. That was my attempt at, okay. Jesus says this twice, says in chapter 18, says it in chapter 5. In 18, he uses the word stumble. Now, I don't know if, if stumble to you might mean ignorance or accident. I don't think anybody in, in this context, Jesus is not meaning people who stumble on accident. I don't think he's referring to that as, as you would like, like down the stairs, you, you misstepped, and so now you've got to cut off your foot. Those darn stairs. I'll show those stairs. I'll cut my foot, right? Or you step on that Lego in the dark of night. It's got spikes and horns and electricity, right? Parents of kids understand that. A demonic Lego in the middle of the night that you step on. Now I've got to cut my foot off. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. Now, I think he would agree, like, if if something's causing you to stumble, don't keep that thing in front of you. Don't keep stumbling over the same sin. But you can't blame the sin, that thing that tempts you for your sin. You are responsible. And Jesus is saying, if, if something's causing you to stumble into sin, then you need to take action. You need to cut out the thing in your life that leads you, that desire in your life. In the other instance, in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is referring to lust, having these passionate desires or cravings. And so he says in chapter 5, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And then he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We have a lot of blind dudes that are walking around here. Because he wants us to take sin seriously. And so he sets up in chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, this is the baseline. You've heard it said. Where, where, where would they have heard this said? The Ten Commandments, ever hear of those? Things like do not murder. Jesus says, you've heard it said do not murder. 
I tell you, if you harbor anger against your brother or sister, you've already killed him. What? Say what, Jesus? I mean, he, these, there are mic drop moments in Matthew chapter 5 all over the place. And this one is no exception. He says, if you look at someone who is not your spouse and you desire them for a selfish sense, you've already committed the act of adultery. He sets the baseline. He says, look, you've heard it said. Here's the baseline. And below the baseline is your basement. How many have a basement? Dark, dingy, you store things away. 16 years of Christmas ornaments, you don't even know where they are. And here's the baseline. Jesus says, this is the baseline. Everything below it, not good. And, and you're saying, don't commit adultery. That's just, you don't want to dwell on the baseline. He says, I'm calling you to something higher. I'm calling you to a greater level of righteousness. Why dwell in the basement? Why, why right around that? If you know in your heart, he wants to get to the heart of the matter. That's why he's telling him, if something's causing you to sin, you better cut it out. If something's leading you astray, cut it out. And he's saying, uh, he says, basically calls them out. He says, I know in your heart what you're saying to yourself is, well, I didn't actually sleep with the woman. I was just window shopping, but I didn't buy the goods. But he knows what's in the heart of people. That leads them to the sin. He's calling out the disease, not just the symptom. And I think the baseline for us, sometimes we say, well, I'm not committing the big sins. I don't even know what the big sins are for you. But we draw this baseline and we just kind of dwell there. And it's like dwelling in the basement. You weren't meant to dwell in the basement because that baseline becomes the basement of a house built on sin. And you let it linger in there. It's like the scary movie, don't go into the basement. And they always do. It becomes a storage for our secrets and our sins, the things that are killing us and eating us, our attitudes and the strongholds that control our thought patterns. But Jesus raises the bar and he says, no, that's not what my followers will do. From the heart, he knows that all of life springs from that. It controls our thoughts and our attitudes. It's the infection that has to be removed. He says, if you're looking lustfully with lustful intent, you have cravings. That, that cause you to set your gaze on anything else but me, Jesus, you've got an infection. You've got something that needs to be cut out of your life. And can I tell you something? We have a problem in our culture. We lust after so many things, not just for people who aren't our spouses. We crave, we desire things that are actually self-destructive, They lead us into patterns that are not good for us. And we desire these things for our own pleasure, our own own gain, our own use. And Jesus is saying, look, set your gaze not on something that isn't yours. I know for me it started out innocently. I mean, it just popped up in an ad on my my web browser. And I I just clicked it once. And then then it had another one. So I, I clicked, and man, these things were beautiful. And so I just, I started gazing on these things. Just, I couldn't consume enough. I even got an app that would let me look at these beautiful objects anytime I wanted. I even had a dealer who was helping me find one. I wanted a new truck. 
like it was consumed with hours. My wife would be, what you looking at? I said, nothing. I hide it away. You're looking at cars again, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I am. My dealer was here in first service, by the way. Isn't it amazing how your mind can get sidetracked with even good things that we begin to crave and desire? And the pattern of my life over that season changed because, well, I needed it. And you know what my mind does? If, if, if my mind conceives that I need something or want something bad enough, it begins to create ways to get it. My subconscious mind is solving the problem of how I might get this thing. So you can imagine that anything other than Jesus, our minds begin to think, how can I get that? How can I get more of that? And then your life becomes about that. Is Jesus in his right mind then to say, if it's causing you to sin, cut it out, chop it off? For some of you, it's where you run, run when you're mad, you're lonely, and you're angry, you're depressed. You run to this thing, this pattern of behavior, when you're confused, when you're hurt. And it's, it's that which you identify with. It's my addictions, it's my habit, it's my lifestyle, it's my identity, because it's there that I, I, I'm satisfied. And why did Jesus use hyperbole then? Because he wants us to take sin seriously. Because sin, it kills. It has already killed you. You're already dead. You just don't know it. Even the scriptures confirm this. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. A, A very sensual society that probably would rival the darkest parts of our own culture. And he writes to them, As for you, you were already dead in your transgressions and in your sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, of the culture around you. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath, But because of God's great love for us, God in his rich mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were were already dead. Isn't God good? Even when we were dead. It is by grace, by God's goodness, you have been saved, Paul says. Here's the truth I want you to walk away with today. Louis Giglio said this, and I think it's so true. Sin doesn't just make you bad. It makes you dead. Sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. Bad is irrelevant. Good, in this case, is irrelevant because sin makes you dead. Dead to the things of God. Sin does not make you bad. It makes you dead. This is an important thing to understand, to grasp. In fact, Paul, in the book to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he he says it this way. I think this is the first step to understanding what Jesus is saying to us, is what Paul says. In verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, in the same way, count yourself or consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Wake up to the reality that you're already dead in sin. You were born into this. And by nature, by instinct, you chase things that are contrary to the things of God. And he says, consider that. Wake up to the reality of it. Therefore, do not let, right? Do not let. By choice, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. He goes on in verse 14 and says, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead, but Jesus gives you life. That's why good, being good doesn't matter either because how good is good enough if you're dead? Good is irrelevant. You are dead. And sin is the culprit in, op- uh, in operation in you and me. Sin is that which separates us from God. Anything that is contrary to God's character, any action or thought that leads us away from the goodness of God, there's that separation. Listen, I- I've learned this about sin. Sin is fun. If it's not, you're doing it wrong. All right, nobody else. My sin is fun for a season. LT, I won't even ask you if your sin is fun. Sin is fun for a season. It brings pleasure. It brings relief. It brings us that which we think we want, but then it becomes our master and the fun fades. If you've ever battled addiction, you know. The fun fades and you can do nothing but think of that master. And the result of our sin is death that which Jesus came to save us from. Wake up to the reality that you're already dead. Now it's just figuring out how do I come back to life? You see, sin has a gravity. It has a gravitational pull. It sucks us in. The closer and closer we get to that temptation, it has a gravitational pull, a force. The writer of the book of James in the Bible towards the end of the New Testament, James chapter one, verse 14 James wisefully, wisdomfully, wisely. I think wisely is the word I'm looking for. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Those things that are already in you, it's your desires that are dragging you away. It says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth and its child is sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It will drag you. And Jesus says, don't be dragged away to hell with both your hands and both your feet, both your eyes. It's better to go to heaven with one eye, one hand, one foot. It's better to to be with me, to come to me, having chopped away something of value, something that even when people look at you, it would hurt your pride because they might know that Jesus wants us to take sin seriously. So first we have to count ourselves dead to sin. We have to wake up to the reality we're already dead and that only Jesus can provide life. And the second thing I do to counteract this, to begin to walk this way, is every morning I have to wake up and do number, the number two thing. Kill the hypocrite that lives in me. There's an old way of doing things, the Bible says, the old nature, the, the way I used to operate selfishly. I, I've got to wake up every day and say no to that 
craving, that hypocrite. You know, the, the word hypocrite in, in Greek really was a, a, a word used to describe an actor who played several parts in, in a production. Can you see how that applies to you and me? We, we act a certain way around certain people or in certain situations and maybe hide the real things going on in our life when there's moments to be honest. I don't know, say like when you walk into church dressed to, in your finest because it's Sunday and you want people to think everybody everything's okay in your life. And in church, we're so guilty of if I dress nicely, people think everything's okay. <laughs> and there's this moment in, in, in this moment that we come together and we can be open and honest. It, it's okay to walk in knowing that you play multiple roles and pretend and raise your hands. But could you be honest in those moments too? Because I think it's okay when you worship to drop that guard for Jesus and say, I I know I've been pretending, but I'm going to be real and honest in this moment. We play that hypocrite. And so every day I've got to wake up and say, I'm going to kill that hypocrite in me. Live as honestly and authentically as I can. I don't have to spill all my secrets to everybody, but I I can live in a way that's honest and authentic. The book of Romans says our old person, they were crucified with Jesus if, if we choose to let that part of us already be dead. And the opposite of that, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says, listen, what's contrary to the spirit is the flesh. Your desires are contrary to what God desires. And he says, there's evidence Here's the evidence of what living according to your desires is. He says, drunkenness, orgies, gossip. Mm, Come on, talk about gossip in church. Slander, words that bring death, not life. He goes on and he says, this is the fruit. This is the evidence of, uh, of what's been planted in your life. He says, the opposite of that, what's contrary to walking in death is walking in life. It's walking in the spirit of God. And he says that the evidence of that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. The, these things are what we all want in our lives. It's what we want in our children. And the only way to walk in that is by the Spirit of God. It says to be led by the Spirit of God. And so we've got to kill that hypocrite in us. We've got to take away its power. Walk in the freedom. The Bible says you've been set free. Now walk in it. This is the key. Sin doesn't make us bad. It makes us dead. But Jesus makes us alive. And he says to take sin so seriously that I think you have to consider the third step in this process. Not only wake up to the reality of sin by counting yourself dead to sin, not only killing the hypocrite, but taking that which is leading you to sin and cutting it out and cutting it off. Listen to the word that Jesus used. He says, gouge out your eye. I, I just think about spoons and I mean, get that picture in, in your brain. It's not pretty. Jesus never shies away from exceptional and demanding sacrifices if we want to follow him. Think about the things he says in the gospel. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Die to your desires. Die to yourself. Give up your life. Sell your possessions to one man. I can only imagine the the, the response of the young man who Jesus says you need to sell everything. 
it would have been like cutting off his hand or gouging out his eye. But I love my stuff, Jesus. Jesus says, well, you, then you can't enter heaven if you love those things more than me. Cut it off, even if it, if it means a great deal to you, even if it means sacrificing your pride, because if you do that, you will cut off sin's power when you cut off your pride. He's saying, you got to take drastic steps to be free from sin. Sometimes, friend, the nuclear option is the only way. You got to blow it up. Literally, got to blow it up. You've got to go nuclear on the things that are leading you to sin. (laughs) It's so important. Jesus says, this has got to happen. You've got to take this step. (laughs) When I was 14, LT, I did something crazy. I listened to the preacher. (laughs) He was preaching on this verse. He was talking about cutting off your eye, uh, gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. And and of course, as a 14-year-old, I was like, oh, Jesus, I have to cut off my hand. And and then I listened to the preacher a little more and he's like, don't don't go home and do that. (laughs) But I knew what the Spirit of God in that moment, as a 14-year-old, I heard the Spirit of Truth speaking to me. And I went home and I had this old black and white television kids they used to make black and white tvs i don't even know why like what and it was like the tv was probably about this big big square thing and the screen was only about that big but it was about this big i sat in my room and and we had an antenna outside that would like the rabbit ear thing big big antenna outside had a cable that ran down and and i could get various channels local channels on on tv and so late at night i would just watch it i would just fill my mind with all sorts of things that weren't of god and I mean, you might look at it on a scale of badness and be like, oh, it's not so bad. But it was bringing death. It was causing me to have thought patterns that were not of God. And so in this moment of clarity, of, of spiritual empowerment, I took a pair of scissors down to my room. I lived in the basement. <laughs> and I cut the cable cord to my TV. And I thought to myself, you know, one day in weakness, I'm going to repair this. <laughs> so I cut the power cord to the television. For a 14-year-old to cut off his connection to the outside world, that was a big step for me in my spiritual walk that day. And I took those two ends of the cords. I set them on my nightstand next to my Bible. I took the TV out because it was no good anymore. I threw it away. And, and it was a couple weeks later, I had some friends come in my room. We were hanging out. And they said, what, what's going on with your where's your television? Why you got the end of your power cord and cable here? And you know that moment of pride when you want to be like, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. I, I, I fessed up. I was honest. I didn't play the hypocrite that moment. I said, actually, I, I felt like God was saying I didn't need to watch that stuff anymore. That it was actually bringing death, not life. And so I, I don't have this in my room anymore. I tell you, it was a moment of freedom for me. As a young 14-year-old struggling with how to serve God completely, that was a moment of freedom for me. And here's, I want to close with this. Thanks for your extra time today. My mom would be so upset when she sees the acronym that, I won't even say the Lord gave it to me because I don't want to use the Lord's name in vain. But here's the acronym that I wrote out and then I realized the letters of it. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. You got to cut the crap out of your life. 
I literally, I wrote this. I said, you got to have confession and repentance. You got to have accountability and you got to pursue something else. LT, this is for you, brother. You love acronyms. You got to cut the crap out of your life. Ain't nobody got time for crap. You got to confess. That's the first thing. Confess. Confession to God is not telling him something he doesn't already know. When you confess, you're agreeing with him about what he already knows is bringing you death. And you're saying, God, this is bringing me death. And he says, I've been waiting for you. And then you got to repent. Somebody asked, what's the difference between confession and repentance? Thank you. There is a difference. Confession is the act of identifying and, and, and agreeing with God about that thing in your life. Repentance is the step after. I turn around and I walk the other way. Repentance is the turning around and the going the other direction of that thing that was leading me astray. So you have to confess, you have to repent, and then you have to find accountability. You gotta find somebody trusted. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's another Bible-believing person of the same gender who can help you walk through some struggles you're having. Who can look you in the eye and say, are you lying to me? Who can encourage you and pray for you? Can I tell you, the body of Christ was given, like we talked about in communion today, to empower you to walk the Christ-like life. You weren't meant to do it on your own. Tell someone else and then pursue. You gotta replace it with something godly. You can't just cut, cut it out and go, well, I'll leave that space open. You've gotta put something godly in your life. Put the word of God in you. Listen to worship music. Listen to the pastor's podcast again if you have to. Hebrews says this. Let us throw off every sin that entangles us. Everything that causes us to stumble, that hinders us. And run with perseverance the race marked before us with our eyes fixed, our gaze set on Jesus alone. Pastor, why would we do that? he's worth it. He's worth losing a hand or gouging out your eye or cutting out that habit or saying no to that wrong relationship because Jesus is worth it. He's my greatest treasure, my greatest desire, my greatest pleasure comes from knowing Jesus. And that is not a hyperbole. He is my greatest gift and he is my freedom from a a life caught and entangled in lust and every entrapment that, that is offered to a man in this culture. He's my greatest pleasure. That's why he's worth it. Sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. But Jesus brings life. And if you want life, Jesus is saying, it may cost you something, but that cost is worth it. Would you stand with me this morning? Church, I want to pray with you that the Holy Spirit of God will enlighten your spiritual eyes and your spiritual heart and your spiritual ears to hear what he's challenging you to, not because your pastor said it, but because the Spirit of God is leading you to walk with him. 
because he's worth it. No, no amount of success, however you define that, will ever amount to the pleasure of knowing Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians, for whose sake I've lost all things. I, can, I consider everything else in my life that I've gained crap. He doesn't say that word, but it pretty much means the same thing. He said that I just might gain Christ, that I might be found in him. And this morning, as I pray for you, church, in this holy moment, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? I believe there are some of you this morning who have never made Jesus your first and only. You've never experienced the, Jesus as your greatest pleasure or treasure. And today is the moment for you to say, Jesus, I believe what you did on the cross was for me to free me of my own sin and sinful desires to bring me new life. If that's you this morning, in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand up high. I'm not gonna embarrass you, but we, the church of believers, is gonna pray with you as you start that journey and welcome you home. If that's you this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Christ with your life, would you lift your hand up high right now? One, two, three, all over this place. Thank you, sweet. I see you all the way in the back. Anybody else? Anybody else? You're brave enough. You have the courage enough to step out of your sin today and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Anybody else who wants to make that declaration today? Anybody else? Anybody else? I see your hand in the back. You can put it down. Thank you. Anybody else? Then church, let's pray with those who raised their hands this morning. Would you pray out loud with them? Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the perfect life that I could not live, to suffer in my place, and to die to pay my sin debt. Thank you that he rose again to give me forgiveness, freedom, and new life. I receive it today in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray for every person who sits in this room, who watches us on the live stream, who listens to this podcast. In this moment, by your Holy Spirit, would you fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit, the only power that gives us the power to be overcomers, to overcome sin and death and all the things that try to weigh us down and keep us from you. Would you do that for every person who asks as they go home, as they go to work, as they go to school? In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. If you believe it this morning, church, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. We look forward to seeing you back next week. Have a great week. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.